0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It's January the 12th. We're broadcasting again. And of course, as we broadcast, my dogs are barking, apologizing on their behalf. Uh, January the 12th, 2021, uh, the ramifications of I don't know what you call it. The rebellion, the riot, the insurrection, all sorts of words used are still reverberating not only around Washington DC, but America and the world. uh, Where apparently all the state capitals on high alert, fearing more violence during the presidential inauguration next week. Um, Enhanced security measures. It seems as if America is increasingly becoming a militarized state um more and more fear some people though are defending the rioters neil young saying that uh, uh we shouldn't hate these people uh these images of the rioters of course are ingrained now in our consciousness this one seems slightly amusing others are quite troubling uh men in beards walking around with uh, camp auschwitz Sweatshirt. So the real question is, what does this all mean in historical terms? We're all bound up in the day-to-day of it, the minute-to-minute, but there are grander historical uh, repercussions and meanings to this uh, this uprising, this rebellion, this revolution in Washington D.C., this riot. Uh, one guy who's done a lot of thinking about this, who's perhaps in some ways the, uh, the closest thing to an American Karl Marx, even if he isn't a communist, is Michael Lind. Uh, he, he wrote a wonderful thing in um, Tablet magazine uh, a couple of days ago, The Five Crises of the American Regime. And this is very much tied up with Michael's new book, The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. So... Michael Lind, I gave you a good introduction. I called you uh, <laughs> the Karl Marx of early 21st century America, even if you aren't um, a Marxist. Uh, and yet in a funny kind of way, you're certainly very influenced by Marxist or Ect marxist thinkers. Uh, is what's going on in America today, or certainly last week, Michael, an example of class warfare? Well, I think you have
1: to distinguish the climate from the weather. So the weather is particular events like uh, this. I, I think it was a, best described as a riot at the Capitol, a, a violent, horrible riot, but, but it wasn't an orchestrated coup d'etat or putsch or anything like that, which requires the uh, participation of the armed forces and the police. Uh, but also the uh, protests of last summer, uh, which uh, had fringe actors on, on the periphery, Uh, engaging in violence in in cities throughout the United States. Uh, So, you know, when you have stormy weather, then uh, you have a particular lightning strike or a particular downburst, and you cannot predict those, but you can predict that something stormy is going to happen if, if, you know, you're in the middle of a, a period that produces storms. And that's why I think we need to step back and look at the underlying conditions, which explain why, in the third decade of the 21st century, you're getting these convulsive events. And I think you have to put the, the riot in, in Washington, in these other state capitol protests, you have to include uh, a lot of the, the violence and looting that accompanied the, uh, the quite legitimate uh, BLM protest, uh, during the summer, which was the biggest wave of violence. In American history since the 1960s, uh, and and ultimately you have to say, ask what's going on uh, in society and the economy that is creating these conditions. Why is this happening now?
0: Right, and, you, and you're very good at, at asking that. Why is this happening now? You present in your uh, in 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 your five crises article, you suggest that there are simultaneously five crises. Uh, political identity social economic and demographic very briefly michael go through these, these well, the separate, political, the political interconnected crises
1: yeah what i call the political crisis is the breakdown of the parties as national federations of grassroots uh chapters or clubs they're essentially now brands which can be captured by either billionaires or or by Economic factions or by self finance candidates, like Donald Trump, Uh, and they have fans—people who identify with them. Uh, But unlike the parties in the United States, all the way up until the 1970s, uh, they are—they are not federal structures where the county party chooses the state delegation, the delegation chooses the convention delegates, who choose the president. They're—they're really brands, and at the same time that the 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 party structure that used to connect political elites with uh, ordinary voters has disintegrated, being replaced by polls and by targeted advertisements. Uh, you have a, a much more centralized political system in the US and when it comes to civil rights I'm in favor of nationalism and federalism and centralizing it. Uh, but what the more you centralize power in any country, the higher the stakes are of controlling it so the political crisis is uh elites engaged in an increasingly nasty zero-sum war and i include uh democratic as well as uh, republican elites uh for power uh and uh, the culture of civility we had uh as recently as if you think of the 1980s with tip o'neill the democrat and bob michael the the republican majority leader uh in in the house uh, has just vanished because of this competition at the top. Uh, the identity crisis uh, is the breakdown of what was a too narrow exclusive definition of American identity uh, that left out African Americans Mexican Americans uh, and other Hispanics, Asian Americans. Uh, that became obsolete with the Civil Rights Revolution and uh, in, the, in the last 50 years, since the 1960s, we haven't come up with, with an inclusive version of patriotism that, that uh, can incorporate everybody's identity. So, you know, that's a crisis. The social crisis is the disintegration of the integrating institutions. Uh, that uh, allowed ordinary working class people in the United States to feel like they belong to a larger community. And the most important of those historically have been trade unions and also churches. Uh, uh, Whether you're religious or not, churches are social institutions which which, uh, integrated people into the larger society. And as those break down, you get more and more isolated, alienated people. Which brings me to the fourth crisis, the demographic crisis. Uh, You have great numbers of people in their 20s and 30s uh, who would have been married, had productive jobs, uh, had families, uh, you know, up all the way up until the 60s and 70s and 80s who are now single, living by themselves, sometimes living with their parents uh, with no secure work. A lot of them are gig workers, no prospects for accumulating wealth because of if they're college graduates, uh, student loan debt even auto loan debt is enormous in the United States. Uh, And so I'm not, you know, judging people on whether they marry or have kids. But the point is, when you have large populations of people who are disconnected, uh, have no families, no property, no homes, then, you know, that's kind of of a disaster waiting to happen, you know, if somebody throws the right match. And finally, at the root of all this, and while I'm not a Marxist, I am A materialist you know i I do believe uh that economics is at the root of a lot of things there's a crisis of pay uh american corporate elites for the last half century have done everything they can to increase their profits not by uh engaging in technological innovation which has actually been very slow for the last uh half century Uh, uh apart from you know the internet which is basically a communications technology uh, what they have done is, is try to boost profit margins by lowering the labor share of the proceeds from uh, sales. Uh, and they've done it by every method they can they can figure out, replacing full-time employees with part-time employees, reclassifying jobs, moving from high-wage unionized states to low-wage unionized states or abroad, and so on and so on. Uh, and a lot of our problems, in my view, would be a uh, uh, made less worse, they wouldn't be totally solved if ordinary Americans had a raise.
0: So that let's let's get married
1: buy homes, you know, be be solid citizens.
0: Um, Mike, let's uh, let's get to the fixes, the solutions to the crisis uh, at the end of this conversation. It seems like these five simultaneous crises are connected by one thing, at least in your mind, the rise of a new elite. It's interesting that your book in the United States, the subtitle is Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite, whereas in the UK, the the subtitle is Saving Democracy from the Metropolitan Elite. Your thinking, uh, it seems to me, is very much influenced by this idea of a managerial elite. If there is uh, an intellectual inspiration behind your book, it's uh, James Burnham, the author of The Managerial Revolution. Tell me about this managerial elite, uh, Mike, and, and why they are behind this multiple crisis of America and American democracy.
1: Well, Burnham, uh, who at one time was uh, Leon Trotsky's number two deputy in the United States before he broke with uh, socialism in the, in the 1930s. All
0: smart 80s. people begin as Trotskyites, don't they, Mike?
1: <laughs> a lot of them do. A lot of them do. Uh, he was with a, a number of people, including an Italian named Bruno Rizzi including von Gilos, uh, a von Glos a bit later, who talked about the new class, who was a Yugoslav uh, ex-communist dissident. But they argued that while Marx might've been right in the 19th century, that capitalists, that is business owners, had displaced the former aristocracy, in the 20th century with the separation of ownership and control in giant factories, where a lot of the so-called capitalists, the investors, Uh, could be you know trust fund kids who had no idea where their money was invested they were not exercising actual control over over uh, institutions so you had the managers at these giant corporations like GM and Ford and General Electric uh, and they and other professional uh, managers as well as uh, well-paid professionals in general uh, were becoming the new ruling elite the new ruling class in Western societies Uh, and and I think that analysis was, was basically correct. I argue in the new class war, the real division is not between the 99% and the 1%, or even the 99.99% and the 0.01% of super rich billionaires. It's between the college educated elite. Uh, I call it the, uh, the overclass, uh, to distinguish it from, from the traditional upper class. Some people call it the professional managerial class. Uh, but if you look at the statistics, and I belong
0: And you to and it. I are, of course, members of this class. I'm, right? I'm a member
1: of it. I'm a traitor to my own class.
0: <laughs> uh, but well, well, not exactly. I would say that you're conforming to the class in the sense, and perhaps this comes back to uh, uh, the work of people like Robert Frank, um, you know, the business of our class is, is 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 nonconformity. So we're kind of conforming to the nonconformist nature of the class. We can have our cake, we can have our nonconformist cake and eat it, can't we, Michael?
1: Well, yeah, but I'd like to see more nonconformists in our class. But but be are there
0: only- any? I mean, can one be a nonconformist <laughs> in an age where nonconformity is the orthodoxy? Uh, it, it's difficult. Uh,
1: but uh, if you look at the statistics, uh, our class, and if you look at I, I use different definitions. Uh, people with BAs are about a third of the population with bachelor's degrees. But to some extent, bachelor degrees are kind of like the new high school diploma. So to be really a member of the elite, you need a professional graduate degree in the United States. I, I teach uh, at the Lyndon B. Johnson of, of uh, School of Public Affairs, you know, which is a master's degree uh, program. Uh, that's about 10% of the population. This group, our group, owns about half of the wealth. The rest of it is divided with the biggest chunk going to a very small group of the rich and the bottom 90%. So we're kind of the invisible class,
0: right? And- uh, Well, we're not that invisible. I'm curious, Michael, do you see a kind of an intellectual movement brewing in which you're part of? You quote uh, David Goodhart, the British social critic in your work. He's been on the show. Uh, Daniel Markovits gave your book a, a fairly positive review in the in the in the, Wall, in the in the Wall Street Journal. He's a critic of meritocracy. We've had Michael Sandel on the show recently too. Is there, with people like Goodhart, Sandel, and Markovits, and yourself, a new movement? Whether or not they're focusing on the managerial class or this new elite, are people beginning to wake up to the reality of, of this new class divided world?
1: I, I think so. I certainly hope so. And and I've been influenced by a lot of the people uh, you mentioned, uh, particularly David Good- Goodhart. Uh, Joel Kotkin has written about this. Yeah,
0: Kotkin's been on the show too, talking about the new feudalism. It's a new feudalism, but it's not really like the old feudalism, is it?
1: No, I I would I'd mark Joel's work, but I take issue with the term feudalism because under feudalism, your lord actually had some obligation to protect and feed you.
0: <laughs> under managerial capitalism. Right. That, that That's the great issue, is the yeah. accountability. Uh, it seems like you're suggesting in your work uh, is that the, the new managerial elite doesn't see itself as an elite and is not willing to be accountable or responsible for society. Is that fair? Well, I think a lot of them are willing to be benevolent and altruistic in their own
1: minds. So if you look at the center right and the center left, and these are people that are not radical right-wingers or, or socialists by any means, their idea of social reform is essentially we will get together like a group of, of bright minds. I was in the think tank, you know, NGO world uh, uh, for the last 20 years. We'll decide what the masses need. Uh, we, we won't actually speak to any working class people, right? Uh, we'll just decide on our own what is good for them. And then we will give it to them. Dayot en bas, you know, it's this kind of- uh, I read a,
0: a fairly critical review of your new book, The New Class War in the New York Times that suggested that you aren't talking to the the working class either. Have you, are you going into the small towns of America and talking to the hard hats, the the people who perhaps were went to Washington DC last week to demonstrate?
1: Well, look, I'm not a reporter or a journalist. Uh, I'm from a working class family on my father's side. Uh, so so I know a lot of this. In fact, uh, uh, keeping in touch, you know, through relatives and acquaintances allowed me to win the electoral pool at the National Interest in 1992 and at Harper's Magazine on the left in 1994. So I think I'm actually much more in touch with the working class than... Uh, the fellow who renewed me who is a second generation uh McKinney consultant
0: yeah, uh, who, yeah. Uh, who that that's another subject yeah. um uh, michael one of the things that i was struck with in your book is i wouldn't say you defended authoritarianism but there is a a, a kind of grudging respect for this new authoritarianism we had ruth ben Giet on the on the show a few months ago talking about her new book strong men but you critical of those people who are critical of the the old frankfurt school notion of the authoritarian personality should we given these class divisions should we be more sympathetic to those people who respect authoritarianism who are drawn to authoritarianism i reject the term authoritarianism
1: they're using it incorrectly authoritarianism means that you have a secret police you have the military uh and and uh you, you control all of the media. Uh, that That is an authoritarian state. Uh, Trump is not an authoritarian in that sense. I mean, you can throw this like his personality. He's bombastic and wants to boss people around uh, and he's inflammatory and he's a demagogue. I mean, every everything I say about Trump in the book is critical of him uh, and of what I call demagogic populism. My phrase demagogic populism is not polite. But he belongs, as do uh, Nigel Farage and Beppe Grillo uh, uh, and uh, a lot of these figures in Western Europe. They are not little Mussolinis or Hitlers. Uh, you cannot be a Mussolini or Hitler unless you have the whole power of the military and the police behind you.
0: Is there a gendered element though, Michael? Here you, uh, here you are, a man, and of course I'm a man too, white men, uh, talking about white other strong men uh, feminists would argue that there is a, a, a gendered quality to this.
1: Well, I think that's certainly the case, uh, that is, uh, on the other hand, they w- might not agree with my analysis, which is, it is absurd to deny the existence of, uh, biological sex differences when it comes to, uh, temperament and aggression, uh, more than 90% of the people in American prisons are men, uh, uh about 6% are women. Um, uh, young men in their 20s and 30s are overrepresented in violent demonstrations, whether it's Black bloc or Antifa on the left, or these uh, lunatics in, in uh, these ma- the mega riot. Uh, so one of the challenges of society, and the left really has to get over this androgynous unisex fantasy, because you can't function as a society unless you recognize that one of the challenges of society is first of all, recognizing that male aggression exists, uh, and it is either channeled uh, in a good constructive direction uh, or or uh, defeated and thwarted. Uh, Trump is like your basic alpha male. You know uh, I can't um, if, and if you think about his equivalents, both historically and in in the Western world today, you don't get female demagogic populists. I mean, I guess you have Marine Le Pen, uh, but she's kind of following in her father's footsteps. Uh, but but yeah, this a lot of this is male aggression. Uh,
0: Michael, um, what about the issue of race? Uh, it's in a sense missing from your analysis. We had let me finish. We had a number of we've had a number of shows about racism and systematic exclusion in America. We had Elliot Curry on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about uh, the 162,000 African-Americans who've lost their lives to violence in the 21st century. How does race play into this? To your analysis of of the new class warfare. Are Blacks on both sides of this warfare? Well, in my book, uh, in my first chapter, I make uh, uh,
1: the racial element explicit. So I reject your characterization, saying I've ignored it. It's consistent throughout the book.
0: Uh, what make I do it, is so I, I don't think you ignore it, but I, I don't see a lot of people make it central and you don't make it central.
1: That's because uh, we are the, the class divisions within each race are uh, significant and they are ignored by a view of society as a classless society, which has vertical divisions between What in the United States are five largely fictitious abstract races created by the Office of Management and Budget for the census in 1977? Did you know that? That's why we have these phrases, Asian and Pacific Islander. There's no Asian and Pacific Islanders. There are Japanese Americans, Filipino Americans and Indian Americans. This is a category that was created by the federal government for a census form and we use it every 10 years on the census. African-American is a 1980s term. Before then, phrases like Negro uh, or colored distinguished American descendants of slaves from Kenyans and Nigerians. So let's be clear that uh, when people talk about race now, they're using these abstract categories that don't correspond to real communities. According to the census, I am a non-Hispanic white. Now, how absurd is that? I'm part Swedish, part British, and part Jewish. To call me a non-Hispanic white is to define me as a white who is not a Mexican or a Central American. That's absurd. Uh, so uh, to get back to, to the class war, uh, the, the, the conventional discourse ignores the fact that while uh, African Americans, to use the term, which which is all we have uh, at the moment, uh, are disproportionately poor compared to white Americans. Uh, most African Americans are not poor, and there are numerically far more white Americans who are poor than there are African Americans who are poor in absolute numbers. Uh, at, at this point in 2021, uh, most Hispanics, so-called, most African-Americans, so-called, and most non-Hispanic whites, so-called, are working class, high school educated people who live in suburbs and exurbs. So this image of like uh, urban minorities and suburban whites, that might've been true in 1970, but it's not true now. And the other reason why this conventional narrative about race doesn't work is that uh, you saw a substantial shift uh, among every non-white group toward Trump and the Republicans in the 2020 election. Uh, the, uh, you, the Republican Party still loses, partly for good reasons, uh, most non-white voting blocks. but there was a really dramatic shift, uh, uh, you know, along the, and it was nationwide among uh, Hispanics uh, in particular. Uh, uh, but also uh, a lot of African Americans. More African Americans voted for Trump this time as a share of the African American population than in 2016. So this conventional narrative that Trump is the embodiment in the Republicans of white nationalism, there's no doubt that crazy white nationalists would like the Republican Party to be the vehicle for white supremacy. But clearly there is some appeal uh, to the Republican message and to the uh, uh, Trump message, to uh, African Americans and Hispanics, at least a minority of them, and and you know you have to explain that.
0: And you can Let's, can't let's, let's get on to fixes, Michael. Yeah, um, we had a show uh, a couple of weeks ago featuring four nonfiction writers who've all spent time uh, on the road with uh, under uh, in, 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 in small towns with people who are sympathetic, I think, to, uh, in many ways, your critique of, 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 uh, of, of America. Tom Zollner's The National Road, in particular, I thought was interesting. Let me quote him. He said, the American concept of geography has undergone a powerful shift. Place is less important than it has ever been to those who can free themselves from it, yet more important to those who aren't able to leave it. Is the beginning of a fix? to the, the, the class war that you're describing, this broad crisis of America. Is it fixing geography? Should the metropolitan elites, the managerial class, do, do we need to reestablish their tie to geography? How do we do that?
1: Well, I think uh, the, the ultimate economic base of the class war in the 21st century is the geographic immobility of labor, and that's labor of all races and uh, the, the geographic mobility of capital. And as long as capital can uh, shut down a factory or, or a store uh, in, in one state and move to another state or in one country and move to another country uh, and in order to evade unionization or, or to avoid paying higher wages, uh, then you're just gonna have a system where the managerial elite, it's not just the capitalists, it's, it's the CEOs, the managers, uh, particularly of large multinational corporations, just, just are able to divide and rule, you know, play one country against each other in a race to the bottom. So and here, I'm fairly radical, unless there are restrictions on trade and the mobility of capital
0: and immigration, right? You're, uh, you're fairly sympathetic yeah,
1: yeah. To, to immigration. Well, well, I, well, obviously, I mean, that's obvious. Uh, if, if, uh, the factory can fire everybody who's working there and bring in guest workers, you know, or, or even legal immigrants willing to work for lower wages to replace them, then, you know, you have to limit that. Uh, immigration does not affect most wages in the U.S. That's much more affected by the lack of unionization, in my view, but there are areas like construction and like meatpacking where employers have used foreign-born workforces to drive out higher paid workers of all races. It's not just a racial thing. But mainly, uh, it's it's uh, offshoring. Uh, that is, if you can offshore, uh, you know, much of your production to low wage labor in other countries, uh, then essentially, even if you don't do it, you merely threaten it. That's the threat hanging over the head of the workers. If you try to unionize a factory and the management can say, well, you know, if you do that, we may have to go to Mexico. We may have to go to the Philippines. We have to go to Vietnam. And then where will you be? You know, and then you force the workers to take wage concessions in this race to the bottom. So and this is the one thing which the establishment Republicans and Democrats find unthinkable. It's too radical for them. The Biden Democrats will not even consider any any uh, limits on uh, uh, offshoring. They talk about bringing stuff back, but it's through kind of placebo things that don't work, like, you know, more STEM skills or so on. Uh, U.S. Uh, companies didn't move production to Mexico and China because the Mexican workers and the Chinese workers were math geniuses. They moved them there because they had lower wages. That's all. It's pure naked. Is there an element
0: of nostalgia about your thinking, Michael, um, this return to this almost Tocquevillian idea of America with these strong intermediary institutions, churches, unions. Is it really realistic to go back to this?
1: You go back to it in a new form. You don't go back to it in a 1950 form. It's going to be look different in the 2050. Uh, But yeah, sure. You could look technology does not determine the structure of your society by itself. Uh, The same industrial civilization, uh, was the same tools, the same technologies were used by the fascists to create fascist dictatorships, by communists to create communist dictatorships, by Latin American military regimes, by European and American democracies. They're all the same tools, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, telephones and radios and automobiles and and so on. And that's the same in the 21st century. Uh, The iPhone is totally politically neutral, right? You know, computers and the internet and robots uh, do not tell you you have to have a particular kind of social structure. Uh, That's a kind of economic determinism. And uh, one of the problems with neoliberalism uh, is uh, it's adopted Margaret Thatcher's acronym. Do you know that? T-I-N-A, there is no alternative. And of course, she was wrong. There was always an alternative.
0: Yeah, we forgot about Margaret Thatcher talking about uh, authoritarian females, Michael. Uh, (laughs) In your five crises, um, the one that you don't mention, which a lot of people would have added, would be an environmental crisis. We had uh, Jason Hickel on the show recently talking about degrowth and saving the environment. Do you not see this as relevant in terms of these multiple crises in America? Well,
1: you, it, it it wasn't relevant to my discussion of the institutional disintegration uh, at the moment. In the long run, well, obviously, you know, there are limits to the amount of pollution, to the amount of global warming. It, it is
0: is 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 the green movement uh, a fetish of the uh, of the managerial class? Is it real?
1: I'm very skeptical. I'll tell you why. Uh, because I think if you thought. Uh, climate change was really going to devastate civilization in the next 30 years you would want to build nuclear power plants left and right forget about the nuclear waste that's a relatively minor issue containing nuclear waste locally compared to the extinction of the human race Uh, and so to me the big dividing line is uh look there is no way you're going to go from what now is like 10 or 15% renewable energy for industrial civilization, to 100% uh, in, the, in the foreseeable future, uh, unless you have a role for nuclear energy. So that's kind of my litmus test. And there are uh, pro-nuclear environmentalists, but because the environmentalist movement is very stuck in this kind of 1970s anti, you know, Three Mile Island mindset, uh, I, I just, you know, I can't take it seriously. If, if you're have- the
0: controversialist, um, uh, and, and that's why you're on our show. Finally, uh, Mike, uh, we had Evan Osnos on the show, the, the the author of the excellent new bio of of Joe Biden. You mentioned um, you thought Biden needs to reform immigration law. Very briefly, a couple of things that Biden can do in the first couple of years of his administration, in addition to perhaps immigration law, to, to end this class war, to, 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 to rekindle uh, a, a one America, a genuine making America great again.
1: Well, the, the single most important thing he can do is to bring back collective bargaining, perhaps in new forms, uh, because unless workers are represented directly by organized labor in one form or another, then the political system is almost always going to be dominated by wealthy people. And the wealthy people may be wealthy progressives who mean very well and so on, but they're really not accountable to anybody except themselves. Uh, So we've seen some encouraging uh, results from the Fight for 15 campaign uh, uh, nationwide. And in New York City, Governor Andrew Cuomo reconvened a a wage board. There are these wage boards which go back to the 1930s and 40s in some states, which uh, for industries that are difficult to unionize, like fry cooks and restaurants, uh, you get labor representatives, business representatives, maybe consumer and government representatives. Uh, They set the minimum wage and the standards for a particular sector. So I've written about this uh, for a site called American Compass. I do not believe that the old uh, site-by-site establishment-based, you know, kind of unionization can be revived at this point. But uh, giving workers power through some kind of collective bargaining process, number one, two, and three on the agenda.
0: And And we'll have to have you back on the show. We haven't got time, Mike, to talk about it now. We'll have to have you back on the show to talk about the precariat and the sharing economy and the regulation or lack of regulation around that. Certainly, a wonderfully provocative conversation, Michael Lynn, The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. Whether you like it or not, a central reading. Mike, you're stuck in Austin, Texas, in these strange times in early uh, January 2021. What else should people be reading in addition to to your new book? Well,
1: I'm a great fan of the British philosopher John Gray, uh, a very subtle thinker who is, is impossible to categorize politically. And he has a wonderful, amusing, but also insightful book, Called feline philosophy, it's meditations about cats, and uh, uh, you know what they can teach us observing them, about a non-human mentality, about human relations with nature, and and life itself. So so I heartily recommend feline philosophy,
0: by John Gray. Wow. I heartily recommend, in addition to that, your new book, uh, perhaps America's leading non-Marxist Marxist Marxist or America's uh, conservative Marxist. I don't know what you call Michael Lynn, but he's he's, he's a great interview, provocative, honest, and very smart. Thank you, Michael, so much. And we will look forward to having you on the show again to talk perhaps more about the sharing economy. So happy and healthy 2021. The same to you. Thank you, Andrew you've been listening to keynote hosted by me andrew key make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts while you're at it if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at Lit Hub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.